Uh, some things mix well together, and some things don't mix so well together. Some things complement one another, and other things conflict with one another. Some things are harmonious, and some things are discordant in this world. And we learn about that throughout the course of our lives, maybe from our parents, maybe from teachers, and certainly from experience, we learn in life that there are things that go well together and that there are other things that just don't. And hopefully we learn some of that from the church as well. Lauren and I, as, as many of you know, have grown over the years in our love of gardening. But we still remember when we started gardening how we would ask the question, well, where should this plant go or what plant or flower should be in this particular place? We had no idea. We had no idea of how things would fit together at all, how, how they would shape together. But over time, you come to understand how things mix together, how they complement one another, perhaps in the texture of the leaf or the, uh, the, the outline of the plants or the colors of the leaf or the materials that you're using. And your eye begins to develop a sense of, yes, that goes well together. That's how many of them you need. This is the order that they need to be in. And so kind of order comes out of the chaos. Now, just to acknowledge something, we still get it wrong. There's a, there's a tree that I bought earlier this summer, and I have literally, I plant, bought the tree for one particular spot. I planted it there. I thought this is great. I had it there for a couple of days. I thought that's the wrong spot for it. I uprooted the tree. I planted it in another spot. It was there for about a week and a half. I pulled the tree up from that spot and moved it to another spot. So you still get it wrong. But you begin to learn why things are and why things should be in a particular place. And when you're trying to figure out how things fit together, and, and this can be anything. I, I use the example of gardening. Architecturally, how do things fit together? In a meal, in a particular recipe, how do things fit together? In a relationship, how do things come together? You discover things. You discover some things that come together in a really good and natural way, and that's exactly what you'd expect. Other times, things come together in a surprising way. You didn't think they would mix well. It doesn't seem like they should mix well. And yet when you put them together, they are a really good mixture. And then you discover some other things that just shouldn't go together at all. They just don't work. As God's people living in the world, one of the great challenges that we have of our faith is discovering what works well together, what pairs well together, what complements our relationship with God our faith in God, our worship of God, and what doesn't go so well? What ends up making that a corrupt mixture, a contaminated mixture, things that don't go well together? So a persistent question that exists, whether you're talking about the Old Covenant and Joshua or the New Covenant, is how do you live in this world? How do you we work in the world? We shop in the world. We have relationships with all sorts of people in the world. We try to do good in the world. We try to love our neighbors in this world. We try to enjoy the creation that God has made in this world. How do you do that, live in this world, and at the same time 
keep ourselves, and this is a, this is a, a quote from James 1.27, how do we keep ourselves unstained by the world? It, it has the potential to stain us. So how do you do both of those things? How do you live in it and yet be unstained by it? Joshua, end of his life, sees a very good combination, things that fit well together. What fits well together in the book of Joshua? Well, it's pretty simple. God's people living in God's land with God dwelling in the land. That is a good combination. Those things are good together. So it's good for the people of God, even though they've got their own tribal allotments, to be in this place together as Israel. And it's good for that to be the land that God has provided and have the blessing of God dwelling with them. Those are all good things. The problem that Joshua recognizes, and I'm just going to use a phrase that's out there and we talk about it in various spheres right now. The, the problem is that Joshua recognizes that there are free radicals out there. In this world, there are free radicals. There are things that don't fit with other things. There are free radicals. The free radicals in the land are the nations that were not fully dispossessed. Right? That's the whole basis of this story. Many of the nations, many of the peoples have been dispossessed, and Joshua recognizes that. But there's still more to go. There's still a lot of these people around. And not only within the land, they're on the border of the land as well. And of course, when we think about this idea, this term free radicals, we can also realize this, the, what the new, this is true in the old covenant as well, but what the new covenant makes so clear is that the problem isn't just with free radicals that are out there somewhere, other people. The problem is I've got free radicals in my heart as well. And what free radicals do is they seek to attach themselves to other things. They seek to, to change other things by attaching themselves to these things and changing the nature of them, if not with nefarious intent, often with nefarious results that take place. So beautiful combinations are transformed into corrupt concoctions when all sorts of stuff attaches to them. Joshua, therefore, at the end of his life, warns the people of Israel in the title of this sermon, don't get mixed up. That's what he's trying to tell them at this particular stage. To paraphrase one author who, who looks at this chapter, it is one thing to be the people of Israel, to be faithful, to be zealous, to be laser focused in what they are doing when you are entering into the land for the very first time. When you are fighting these very dramatic battles and when you see God acting in remarkable ways and when Joshua's there. You know, if you get confused, just where's Joshua? Well, for that matter, where's Caleb? Where are one of these guys who I can look at? That's one thing. It's one thing to have laser focus at that time. Everything's fresh, everything's new, everything is exciting. It's another thing. It's another thing to have focus, to keep your faith and your walk pure when the main warfare has ended. And that's what this is about. 
The main warfare has now ended. There's a certain level of rest that pervades the land of Canaan that hadn't for years. Normal life is going on. You're not being given a whole new plot of land. You're engaged in normal maintenance, if you will. It's one thing to build, it's another thing to maintain. And Joshua's about to die. Joshua himself is about to go the way of all of the earth. And the question becomes, how do you avoid dilution? How do you avoid the watering down of your faith? I think we've got some ancient answers to that question from this text that is before us today. Joshua is going to give an objective imperative, an affective imperative, and a, and a discriminative imperative. That's what we're going to look at today. An objective imperative, affective, and discriminative. First answer. Fidelity to the faith throughout the millennium across the world between one generation and the next requires something objective, something transcendent, a standard, a norm. And so for his introductory charge, his introductory, his first imperative to the nation, Joshua says, in light of all these promises, okay, in light of the promises that God has made, by the way, did you see this in your New Testament lesson? Since this is the end of it, Second uh, Corinthians 7, 1, since we have these promises, so Joshua is saying the same thing as Paul, since we have these promises, since we have seen these promises fulfilled, here's what he says, verse 6, chapter 23, therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it, neither to the right hand nor to the left. Joshua has gathered up a lifetime of wisdom. Imagine we bring him out, he's preaching to us today. Joshua, you were with Moses. You were on the mountain. You saw these campaigns. You led Israel into the promised land. Joshua, what is the secret of your success? Now, I, I, I talked with a couple of you in here. Uh, there was a special on, I guess it was a couple of months ago. I think it was called The Making of Warren Buffett. And, and I watched it. You kind of know, like, okay, how did Warren Buffett become Warren Buffett? And if we had Warren Buffett, I mean, uh, maybe that doesn't work. If we had Dave Ramsey, okay? So, so if you want to Christianize this, if we had Dave Ramsey. Dave, what's the secret of your success? Warren, what's the secret of your success? And you kind of slide to the edge of your chair because he says, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm going to tell you the secret. And Joshua gives us this one, verse 6, that I just read. And we go, okay, okay, wait a minute. You've lived 109 years. You've seen all of this. You've experienced all of this. You've literally sat at the feet of Moses. And, and you have to tell us, know the Bible, understand the Bible, and obey the Bible. That, that's what you're, you're going to tell to us. It sounds surprisingly simple 
It is decidedly lacking in originality. You know, he says this, and you kind of think, I don't know if you think this, do you think this? You go, wait a minute, isn't that the first Sunday school lesson I learned? Maybe, okay, the first Sunday school lesson that you learned was Jesus loves you, right? That's the first verse, Jesus loves you. The second Sunday lesson, the Sunday school lesson that you learned was because the Bible tells you so. And then the third was, and so you should do good. So, the, so that, that's the, the, the whole gospel in a nutshell. Jesus loves you because the Bible tells you so, and you should do good because of those things. And you hear this one, you hear Joshua say this, and you go, wow, wow, that's really coming back to the very basics of things. It is essentially a paraphrase of what God said to him at the very beginning, right? So Joshua 1.8, God says to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, being careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall have good success. Joshua gathers up the leaders of Israel. At the end of his life, he gives them a message, and the message is exactly the same thing. I'm going to take this and pass it along to you. The pedagogical ingenuity, the pedagogical brilliance of Joshua is to pass along what the Lord taught him to the next generation. That should sound a lot to us, not only like the old covenant, but like the new covenant as well. So here's the lesson. Whether you find yourself in the wilderness with Moses, at war with Joshua, or in the wilds of Wayne, here's the message. Remember the law of God. Keep focused on the word of God. Keep focused on the will of God and the promises of God because this word of God, this law of God, these objective imperatives from the word of God, they come to every generation. They come to every generation with their attendant warnings and threatenings associated with disobedience. And they come to every generation with their attendant promises for obedience to them, the promises of blessings, the promises of long life in the land. Every generation hears them. It's objective, it's unoriginal. And in a confusing world where the boundaries of acceptability, the answer to the simple question, what's the good life? How do you live well? How do you do good? Where those are continually redefined God provides an objective, clear answer to the question, how then should we live? Well, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. And that's true, and Joshua says it, even when it is scary to say something like that. These words, I suggest to you, are scary words. Verse 16, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, you go over and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. That's an end of a sermon. That's a, that's a hard end to a sermon. There's, there's, no, there's no benediction here. Ralph Davis looks at it and he says, well, there's nothing wrong with an unhappy ending 
if it leads to faithfulness on the part of God, on the part of God's people. So if the warning suffices, then we will receive the warning. The objective imperative, remember the word of God, obey the word of God, is then paired with an affective imperative. And you heard it, I read it for us, verse 8. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. And verse 11, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Joshua is a warrior. He is completely committed to his unequivocating God and that God's unequivocal word. But this does not make him cold-hearted. It does not make him in any way unaffected. He is willing to appeal to the heart and soul. Verse 14, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls. He can tell them one thing and say you objectively know it, but he can also say to them, you know this in your heart and soul. You know it to be true deep down within you. And he's unapologetic, and he commands the affection. He doesn't say to them, your heart may go any which way. He commands the affection, be very careful to love the Lord your God. This is very much the way Moses exhorted the people in the book of Deuteronomy. We have, in the first place, the clear, the objective call to obey the Lord, to obey his law, and that is a very particular work. Joshua doesn't just want general obedience, the idea of obedience. He wants people to obey the word of God in particular settings. It manifests itself in concrete situations. But this affective imperative that he has rests kind of above and underneath all of the particulars of a life that you're seeking to live in obedience to God and to his word. And it says that in the midst of those particulars, in the midst of obeying God in particular situations, do not lose the broader call that exists to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When, when we're gardening, people will sometimes ask us the question, do you ever stop the work of gardening to actually appreciate it, to actually enjoy it, or do you just work at it all the time? Now, to put it colloquially, do you ever take time to stop and smell the roses? And our answer is yes, actually we do. We do take time. We take plenty of time to stop and just to look and to enjoy. But we've also learned to enjoy the particular work. The objective work, the deadheading, the, the weeding, the trimming, the clipping of things. Let me change the analogy here for just a moment. What keeps people from adultery? Well, it's not only objective and particular obedience to the laws of marriage. And sort through scriptures, different principles, laws that relate to marriage. It's not only those things that keep people from adultery. 
but it is ultimately a love for your spouse that keeps you from adultery. You have to have the particular things, but it's the affection that keeps you from adultery. Remember, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. You did the particulars. You tithe the smallest things, but you failed in the affective. You failed in love and mercy and justice. And so Joshua is trying to say two things at the same time, just like Moses does in Deuteronomy. I want you to be particularly zealous to obey the law of God in detail. And I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart. They're not in conflict with one another, but you might lose the one in doing the other. Joshua commands both objective and affective. But in addition to this, there remains the discriminative imperative that is in here. We are in the world, and we will always be tempted to, and this is to use the words from Paul in 2 Corinthians, we will always be tempted to be yoked with this world. We will always be tempted to be of the world. And so Joshua warns the Israelites that if you are going to obey and follow God in this world, you are going to have to be discriminative. You are going to have to avoid mixing with the nations. That's what it says several times. Don't mix with the nations. Don't mention their gods. Don't worship them. Don't swear by them. And in particular, don't intermarry with them. It's going to be a temptation. They're out there. They're in the land. They're living right next to you. You're going to be tempted to do that. Don't intermarry with them. Listen to this again. For if you, verse 12 and 13, if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and you make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip for your sides and a thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Can you imagine the argument? The Israelite son makes to his Israelite parents, but she's beautiful. She lives right next door. I love her. I'll keep faithful to the Lord. I can't control my heart. She's wonderful. Don't mix with the nations. Don't turn that way. Because you think you're going to be expressing freedom. You think you're going to say, listen, I can be free to do this. I can do what I want to do. And God says, it's not freedom. It's a trap. It's a snare. It's a thorn. It's a whip on your sides and you don't even realize it. You've got to discriminate. Now, I, I want to say something having just... Obviously, by saying discriminative, I've avoided intentionally the word discriminate. Having now used it, I want to make this completely clear. I have to say it in a succinct way, but it has to be clear. The passage and the principle here of being discriminative is not, it is not a pretext for nationalism, for racism, for sexism, or for monastic isolationism. 
It cannot be used for that. Jesus led a holy life in this world. And he spoke with Samaritans, and he spent time with women. The Bible doesn't condemn interracial marriage or international relationships. The Bible doesn't condemn you when you do business with people in this world, when you have friendships with people in this world. Instead, the essence here, and this is especially where we need to understand what's going on in the old covenant context and bring that into our new covenant context. The essence that is being discussed here is how do we keep the faith pure? How do we keep the church pure? How do you keep the individual Christian life and the Christian family pure, not mixed with the wrong things? How do you keep your body pure? This is where Paul takes it to in Corinthians. How do you keep your body pure? It's as true in the New Covenant as it is in the Old, and it's exactly what Paul is saying. It is as if we are made, covered with syrup. We're covered with some sticky glue or some sticky tape, and the world has a cannon that is firing furballs at us. Stuff wants to stick to us from the world. Here's the reality. God has made you to stick to other things. You will cling. You see the setup that was there in the passage? You will either cling to the Lord or you will turn back and cling to those nations. Not clinging is not an option. You were made like a, like a piece of Velcro looking for the other side, whatever, the smooth side, looking for the furry side, looking for the sticky side, or whichever way you want to look at that. So you're created looking for something to connect to. That's the way that God has made us. We all have to hear this, but kids, you have got to hear this clearly. You've got to hear it especially. You are made for attachment. You are made for covenantal attachment. We are not made to be autonomous. We are made to be, by God, connected in this world. In the first place, clearly, we're, we're called to be connected to God, not independent from God. We are called to be connected to this world that God has made. God didn't make us in spacesuits, free-floating, and can do anything we want. We are intimately dependent upon this world that he has created. That's natural. That's the way he made it. And we are made to be connected with one another. We are looking for things to mix with well, to come up with good combinations, proper things with which to cling. But as Joshua warns, as the writer of Hebrew warns, cling, sin clings very closely. And it clings very easily to us. The world is firing feathers at your stickiness. Joshua tells us to be discriminative in what attachments you form. You have to choose, and you have to choose wisely. The world tells you to be open, to be tolerant, to be inclusive. 
There are no distinctions, the world tells you. Joshua says, no, you must be discriminative. Because some things will complement and other things will corrupt the faith. Joshua says that the word, that your spiritual leaders, that your family, that your parents should be your guide. The world says, no, that's silly and that's outmoded. Facebook and Twitter trends should be your guide. Let that shape how you attach things. Let that shape how you think. All right, kids in the church, as far as I know, you're not going to have to battle Jebusites, Hittites, Canaanites. You're not going to have to battle the Anakims that are out there. But marketers want your soul. They want your soul. They want your loyalty. Amazon bought Whole Foods. They will do anything to buy you. They will do anything possible to attach themselves to you. And to get real specific, it used to be you had to go somewhere to make a purchase or to hear about something. You had to go somewhere to be a friend. But something now clings to you. It is actually clinging to 95, 94% of you right now. It is clinging right here. After the service, it'll cling right here. It is clinging to you. It is attaching you to something. You think you're free? <laughs> We're captives. Captives. We're ca captives to three companies. Ask me after the service. Three, you know which ones they are. Captives to three companies in the world. Here's the good news, brothers and sisters. The good news is that the blood of Jesus Christ has greater purchasing power than the combined purchasing power of Facebook, Amazon, and Google. I said it. You don't have to ask me. And he can purify. And he can cleanse. And he can present us unstained. Through the Spirit, we have been connected, united in Christ. That is the connection to make much of. We are not battling physical Canaanites. We are engaged in a war for our souls. The commander, the Lord, the captain of the host, through Joshua, his servant, has given the battle plan. An objective imperative, know the word, pursue holiness through obedience to the word. An effective imperative, love the Lord and sing songs and pray songs like more love to thee, O Christ. And a discriminative imperative, be wise, be selective in your time, in your worship, in your loyalty, in your relationship. Are you clinging to somebody? something clinging to you that you got to get rid of you can cling to the Lord with all your heart all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ therefore 
God help us to pursue purity, fidelity, and an undivided heart. Joshua says to us, don't get mixed up. Lord, our confession that comes out of our mouths is that it is so easy for us to get mixed up. Each one of us right now probably has things that you've put on our minds, put on our hearts to say, yep, I'm mixed up there. I've been ensnared by this or that. In the first place, forgive us, Jesus. In the second place, cleanse us and enable us through your power to cling to you and not to this world. To understand how we live in this world, do good in this world, enjoy it and glorify you with it, but are not consumed by it. Help us to love you with an undivided heart. We pray in your name. Amen.